If you've got a Bible, open it to 2 Peter. Peter wrote two of the New Testament books, and they're conveniently called First and Second Peter. And we're in the middle of a series in that second letter, but we'll explain what this passage means to you here in a minute. Yeah, we're going to look at a passage today that's a, a good example of the kind of Bible passage that scares people, because at first flush it looks really hard to understand. But when you kind of back off, it's kind of like if, I, if we had a 1,000-piece jigsaw puzzle, and I just, we had a tabletop and I just threw the thousand pieces on the table and said, put it together. Russell, that'd be hard. But if I said, took the box top off first and said, hey, here's what the puzzle looks like. When all the pieces fit together, now let's figure out how the pieces fit together to get to that uh, point. I think this passage is a good example of that kind of thing. And although it's a complicated passage, and, uh, some Christians will disagree on the exact interpretation of the specifics in the passage, I think the overall uh, message of the passage is quite clear. It basically says, in times of crisis, believers should rest in who God is and resist the temptation to see only the people and problems around us. And let me restate that to be more specific. Really in this passage, it's saying, the take-home from this passage is, In times of crisis, when evil seems to be prospering with no limit, and when evildoers seem to get away with all kinds of garbage, believers should rest in and focus on who God is and resist the temptation to see only the people and problems around us. So that's what we're going to get from this passage, and we'll show you how that all fits together here in a second. But first, as is our custom, let's pray that will be teachable to God's Word. This is a spiritual thing. This is not just an academic, intellectual exercise. We're looking at God's Word that He inspired, He's preserved. And now the Holy Spirit really wants us to know what it means and how it relates to our lives. It's a a revelation, not a riddle. So we're going to pray that the Spirit will illumine this text for us. And also let's pray for those who protect and serve us, including these good folks in our active military and our peace officers, and also our firefighters, okay? So, Lloyd Davis, would you pray for us in that direction? Thank you. To warm up our capacity for abstract thought, I have puns with punch. Watch closely, my friends. Why did the banana go to the doctor's office? It wasn't peeling well. That's why I went to the doctor's office, We're going to do the rest of these, whether you want to or not. (laughs) How do you organize a birthday party in outer space? You've got to plan it. Plan it like Venus, Mars, Jupiter. Don't say Pluto. It's not a planet anymore. And finally, hold your applause. Becoming a vegetarian involves a lot or involves lots of missed steaks. So you can't eat meat. So you're going to miss the steaks. Okay, well, let's continue. Um, have you heard of the 4-H Club? Anybody heard of the 4-H Club? Book of Second Peter is like the 3-H Club because we're talking about hope, heresy, and holiness. And this overall book is saying a Christ-centered hope about the future should motivate believers now to embrace a lifestyle of true holiness, wholeness, and to avoid the heresies, the errors, doctrinally and morally, of false teachers and our culture. Okay. Now, you know, we've, we've got these supersized flashcards over here that Anthony Foreman made for us, and we've 
been using youth group members mainly to hold these things up, but I think today's going to be adult Sunday, but I don't, I want volunteers only. So if you don't volunteer, I'll volunteer you. <laughs> so do we have any adult volunteers? I only need three. Don't all volunteer at once. Okay, we got Julie. She's done it before. Dale, I know you're always up for a challenge. Uh, should I make your dad do it? Yeah, David, come on up. Would you please? You guys just stand up in front of that pulpit there, please. Yeah, we're just trying to uh, help everybody remember the three H's that uh, are described in Second Peter. And so, Dale, if you hold that one up, actually, yeah. And that's for you, Julie, and that's for you, David. Will anyone see it? Okay. Don't don't turn it around yet. Let me give you this graphic. Okay. Anyone? No, 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 no. You're good. Because watch this. Second uh, Peter is like a three-story building with an arch over it. And at the end of the book, it says, hey, here's what the arch is, is the book's all about. Uh, be diligent and be found in Christ in peace, spotless, blameless, grow in the grace and knowledge. And to get there, we talk about the first uh, level, chapter 1, is holiness. So turn yours around. Now, holiness doesn't mean you have got holes in you. Holiness means to be set apart for special things. And God tells us that he doesn't save us based on how good we are. He saves us based on how good Jesus is. But when we trust in Jesus Christ for salvation... He wants us to live for the one who died for us and to comprehensively walk with Christ in every area of life. So holiness is an important part of the Christian life. Second chapter is talking about heresy. And this is the best one. That's a hairy sea. Sometimes people call it the presidential sea. But that's a hairy sea. Now heresy just means false teaching. A teaching that's false, that's packaged as if it's true. It's, it's lies packaged as the truth. And there's a lot of lies out there in our culture and even in the religious culture that don't line up with Scripture that we got to be careful about. And then last but not least, the rose among the thorns, Julie. Uh, our hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. And you know what? He's not done yet. The resurrected Christ who ascended to heaven 40 days after the resurrection is going to come back the same way he left, literally, bodily, supernaturally, uh, to end history on God's terms. And we've got to rest in that because it doesn't look like that's the way history's going if you just look at CNN or MSNBC or Fox News, right? So turn those around again. Let's make sure everybody knows the 3-H club of Second Peter. What's the first thing Peter talks about in chapter 1? Holiness for believers. You don't get saved by trying to be holier than other people. Get saved by faith in Christ who lived a perfect life, who paid your sin debt, rose again, will give you eternal life as a gift. But when he gives you that gift, he doesn't just give you a get out of hell free card, Russell. He gives you a new capacity to serve and ultimately uh, submit to the Lordship of Christ. So that's holiness. What's chapter 2 about? Heresy. There's a lot of falsehood out there. A lot of very teachers much more articulate than me or even James. They're trying to sell you a bill of goods about good, bad, right, wrong, God, evil, the whole thing. That's heresy. And Julie, yeah, you know, this is not pie in the sky by and by. He's already been here the first time, and all his predictions about his death and resurrection came true literally. 
So his predictions and promises about coming back and ending history on his terms, we can depend on those, right? Okay, well, didn't they do a ter- terrific job? The adults can actually do as well as the youth group members, which is encouraging to know. It's not always true. So with that as an overview of the book, let's look at one of the more uh, unique and, and uh, say difficult passages. But here's the thing. When you look at this passage, let's go ahead and read that, and then I'll show you how the structure or the box top shows you what it's talking about. Um, and I'm reading from the New American Standard Bible, Second Peter 2, 4 through 10, really the first half of 10. We're going to stop. Now watch this. You think I talk for a long time sometimes? This whole thing, Ben, this whole thing is one sentence in the Greek text, in the original text. You got one sentence that starts in chapter four, goes all the way through the middle of, of uh, verse four, all the way through the middle of verse ten. So uh, I guarantee you, uh, Kim Younger at Cameron University Duncan would not like this. This is a run-on sentence. But sometimes what you're talking about is so good you just can't stop. Okay, watch this. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, certain angels who are actually demons. But cast them into hell. That's not the word hell. It's the word Tartarus. And Tartarus is a particular place in Sheol or hell. Only for certain types of demons. And committed them to pits of darkness reserved for the final judgment after the second coming of Christ. And if God did not spare the ancient world but preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness, with seven others, his wife's sons and their daughters... When he, God, brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. And if God condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, it looked like they would go on forever in their debauchery, by ultimately reducing them to ashes, having made them an example to those who would live ungodly lives thereafter. And he actually rescued righteous Lot from the midst of that, and his daughters, oppressed by the sensual conduct of unprincipled men, For by what he saw, Lot saw and heard that righteous man while living among them, felt his righteous soul tormented day after day by their lawless deeds. Then, watch, we got an if-then. If God didn't spare angels, if God didn't spare the ancient world, if God condemned Sodom and Gomorrah, then the Lord knows how, not just to rescue the godly, from trials and tribulations, but ultimately to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment. Everybody's going to get what they deserve unless, as a sinner, recognizing your guilt and inability, you trust Christ so that he pays for your debt. Everybody gets what they deserve apart from Christ. That's the bottom line, even though it often looks like people are getting away with murder, literally. In times of crisis, especially when it looks like evil is prevailing and evildoers have no uh, accountability, believers, if you're a believer in Christ, Ron Miller, uh, Brad McCoy, should rest in who God is. When we can't see his hand, trust his heart. And resist the temptation to see only the people and the problems around us. So that's the structure of the passage. That's the box top. And as we work our way through this passage, keep that in mind. And then the details will fit in just fine. Okay? Look at verse 4. Now, by the way, we need some context, don't we? So, in the first three verses of chapter 2, we saw the fact of false teachers getting rich on religion business, getting rich by lying to people about 
little truths like who Jesus is, what salvation is, and things like that. Uh, there will be false teachers among you. They're going to teach destructive heresies, even denying who Jesus is. And yet they're going to claim to be Christians or religious or spiritual. That's verse 1 of chapter 2. Uh, because of these kind of people who associate at least tangentially with Christianity, the way of the truth will be maligned because we find out how inconsistent they are, how moral they are, how much they're uh, in it for the money kind of thing. Verse 3, in their greed, they'll exploit you with false words. But he says, hey, don't despair. They're not going to get away with anything. They're going to get what they deserve. Their judgment is from long ago. It's not idle. The destruction is not a sheet, not a, not a sleep. And God's got a track record. Ultimately, those who don't receive God's grace receive his judgment. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them down into Tartarus, I'm translating directly from the original language, that's a proper noun there for a compartment of hell, a specific area of hell and committed them to pits of darkness reserved for judgment. That's the first example that God's going to make sure everybody gets what they deserved, deserve unless you receive Christ, so you allow him to get what you deserved. Let's talk about who these angels are. This is a reference to an obscure event. We're not given a lot of detail about it in the early chapters of Genesis. In Genesis 6, we're told that the sons of God saw... The daughters of men were beautiful, and they took wives for themselves. And associated with that, the passage says, Nephilim, which means giants, lived on the earth in that period, uh, and they were mighty men, men of renown. And in reaction to all that, the text says, God saw the wickedness of man was great, was horrific, was not sustainable, and every intent of their heart was evil. So what's going on there? There are two views, and there's actually more than that, but two major views that Christians have about this reference in Genesis that's referred to here in Second Peter. Possibility one, because the term sons of God is used for angels in Job, some people think the sons of God in Genesis 6 are a reference to angels, fallen angels, demons, who took wives, who cohabited with the daughters of men. So you got angels... Uh, cohabiting with human beings, and their offspring were the Nephilim, kind of a half-demon, half-human being, kind of a bizarre hybrid being, and that led to the extreme wickedness of men. That's one view. A lot of Bible teachers I respect hold that view. I don't hold that view. I don't. I think demons are an order, human beings are a race, and they don't cohabit, you know? It's just, it's just not possible. Uh, they're square pegs and round holes kind of thing. View two, this is my personal view, my personal favorite view. The sons of God here are not talking about angels, but human beings of the line of Seth all the way through Noah in context. We just had a genealogy in context. And they took as their wives not godly women, women who believed in the promises of the Savior, but daughters of men, human beings not from the righteous line of believers. And some of their kids were Nephilim. They become big, rich, famous people, giants in their power, not necessarily seven foot tall, many of whom were demon-directed to such an extent that they pollute the entire culture and God decided to pull the plug on the wickedness of men. Let's go back to Second Peter 2.4. So if God did not spare certain angels, certain demons who either cohabited with women and created this hybrid race, or who indwelt 
these mixed marriages and cause great wickedness. Either way, you've got incredibly horrific wickedness in the ancient world at that point. Um, but cast them into hell. That's the word Tartarus, okay? And I've already said that a couple times. But that's important. Uh, hell or Hades is not a good translation there. Now, why don't people tell you this? Because it's a little bit complicated. It's going to take you three minutes of hard thinking to get what this means. And people don't want to do that anymore. But here's the thing. In the Old Testament, remember we got the two parts of the Bible. The Old Testament's written before Jesus comes. New Testament's written after Jesus comes. In the Old Testament, everybody who dies, good, bad, and indifferent, believers and unbelievers, go to a place called Sheol. You're thinking, that's not fair. Everybody's going to die in the same place. Sheol is a term for the place of the dead. It's got two compartments for people, a good compartment, a bad compartment, and it's got the lowest compartment for certain demons who are so evil, God has to put them in isolation before the rest of history runs out. Uh, we see this, and Jesus refers to this, in Luke 16. He talks about uh, uh, the rich man, who's ungodly, and Lazarus, who's a godly guy, uh, but poor and, and had issues. And we're told that Lazarus is in paradise, or in Abraham's presence, and the rich man is in torments. And there's a great gulf fixed between those two compartments. That's where human beings go. But Tartarus is this distinct area for certain especially malicious demons. Now, by the way, hey, Brad, I thought that you've got all these passages in the New Testament that say, for the believer, death is your your consciousness, your soul separating and going to be where Jesus is. And where is Jesus? Well, since the ascension, he's in heaven. Let's call that heaven one. By the way, right after the resurrection, Mary sees Jesus outside the tomb and holds on to him and clutches him. She's not going to let him get away and get hurt again. And he says, let go of me, Mary. we got things to do. I haven't yet ascended to heaven. And yet, so he's saying here, he hasn't ascended to heaven, that heaven. But here on the cross, the Jesus wasn't crucified with thieves. He was crucified with murderers. And terrorists, because the Romans didn't crucify thieves, they crucified terrorists, okay? What does the believing terrorist, Jesus, remember me when you come in your kingdom, what does Jesus say to him? Today you'll be with me in paradise. Three days later he says, I haven't ascended to heaven yet, okay? You got paradise, you got heaven, and you got the new heaven, new earth. There's actually three heavens, okay? Say so it takes three minutes to figure all that out, but that's what he's talking about. So let's plug this back in. To our passage, we're talking about the fact that when it looks like you ought to despair and give up on God because evil prospers and evildoers never get what they deserve, Second Peter 2 is saying they are going to get what they deserve. Everybody gets what they deserve, except for believers, and we accept Christ paying and, and taking what we deserve, right? So if God didn't spare, spare the super powerful, super malicious demons involved in whatever happened in Genesis 6, we can debate that, and put them in Tartarus, put them out of business, then God knows how to keep the unrighteous where they're going to get what they deserve on the day of judgment. That's what that says. That's what that means. Let's go to the second example. Look at verses, or verse 5. And... If God did not spare the ancient world in the day leading up to the flood, and Noah takes 120 years 
to build the ark and 120 years of preaching salvation by faith in the promised Messiah and nobody believes him. The entire culture has rejected uh, God and God's grace except for Noah and his family. But if God did not spare the entire world in the days leading up to the flood, but did preserve Noah, a preacher of righteousness, and seven others, his wife, his three uh, sons and their daughters, when he brought a flood upon the earth for the ungodly. So that's the second example. For 120 years, it looks like the bad guys are going to win. Everybody's making fun of Noah for building a boat, right? A boat of that size. Uh, I wasn't there, but that's a class A miracle. I can't reproduce that for you. I can't reproduce it where all of the, uh, you know, uh, vertebrates come two by two into the, the ark. But you know what? If Genesis 1-1 is true, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, then everything else is not just possible, it's plausible. It's the same God who created everything, time, space, matter, and energy out of nothing. He can make all the vertebrate animals end up uh, near Mount Ararat so we can get them in the ark. But the point is, in this context, it doesn't look like for 120 years like anything but Noah's just this kook building this gigantic boat uh, and the and evil prospers for 120 years plus. But if God didn't spare those horribly malicious angels back in Genesis 6, if he didn't spare the ancient world in Genesis 9, and now look at verse 6 of Second Peter, and if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, which seemed to be the most prosperous cities in the region at the time, uh, characterized by epidemic sexual abuse of horrific uh, levels, by reducing them to ashes, having uh, made them an example to those who would live ungodly lives thereafter, uh, then the Lord knows how to keep the unrighteous under uh, punishment. That's what that's saying. But now notice this. We're not just getting uh, affirmation of the fact that God keeps score, knows your name and number and where you live, and apart from the grace of God in Jesus, you are going to face his justice. Even in the midst of those kinds of situations, we see some light, don't we? In the midst of the 120-year run-up to the flood and the uh, maliciousness of the ancient world, God manages to preserve Noah and his family even in the midst of that temporal judgment. In verse 6, 7, and 8, if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, uh, who are still legendary to this day with their debauchery, and yet from the midst of that, he rescued righteous Lot. Right? Now, we... The last time I was here actually teaching, my mother passed away on March the 10th, and then that next weekend we were down there for the funeral, uh, and James spoke for me. And then the next week we had such an excellent possible speaker. Brent Corbin was actually available. Uh, Billy Graham's not available anymore. He's in heaven too, right? We got heaven one, paradise and Sheol, heaven two, where Jesus ascended to, heaven three, new heavens and new earth, Revelation 21. So we had Brent. And then last week, can't remember what I preached on last week. It was Easter. What did I talk about? Uh, maybe the resurrection? Yeah, we talked about resurrection. So it's been like four weeks since I've been in Second Peter. But uh, on that particular message, you may not remember that, because, but I do. Uh, some of you were taking a nap that morning. But uh, I remember, Ben, I just kind of pulled this reference to righteous Lot out of here, because that sounds so weird. Because if you look at the way Lot's described in Genesis, there's nothing righteous about him. He's slimy, okay? He chooses to live in Sodom and Gomorrah, right? Uh, the angel has to drag him out of Sodom and Gomorrah. He, did. He, he wanted to go, and he really didn't want to leave. 
But we talked about the amazing truth that salvation is by God's grace, unmerited favor, through faith for Old Testament folks and the promised Savior, for us in the provided Savior. And that gives us a standing that makes us fit for heaven, even though it's not our righteousness, it's his righteousness given to us legally. Okay, All the world religions talk about do something, do something to reach nirvana, a peace of mind, or to reach Allah, or to reach uh, whatever God they believe in. It's only Christianity that says, God so loved the world full of people who uh, nobody's good enough, they don't need this, nobody's so bad they can't have it, but God looks at the world and he goes down and he does for us what we could never do for ourselves. You know, uh, Christ dies for the ungodly because God doesn't grade on a curve. He grades humanity based on the cross. You know what? You look at a congregation like this, uh, you know, there's, there's probably some really, really good people, a lot better than I am, just in their character. And there are probably a few slimy people in here. And I'm, I'm not, I don't know some of you, so I don't know who you are, you know, but I'm just guessing, okay? But, you know, it's kind of a strata of human goodness and human badness in this room, in this city, in this world. And you might think, well, and the average American thinks, God kind of looks at that, draws a line somewhere. The problem is we're not sure where he draws the line. Does he take the top 50%? Top 30%, top 10%, top 1%. We're not quite sure if we believe you can be saved by being better than most people where he draws the line. That gives you something called eternal insecurity, and it ain't going to work. Because if you could work your way to heaven, Jesus died needlessly. But here's the example I like to use. Let's We're all different in our human goodness, right, Blaine? But Blaine's an ex-baseball player, very good baseball player. Let's say, and Ken's an, an ex-athlete, ex-coach. Not ex-athlete, you're still an athlete. Aging athlete, right? And I was a baseball pitcher and a softball pitcher for a long long time, too. But anyway, let's say uh, we all gave everybody an official Major League Baseball. We put them on the north part of the parking lot. We got a compass. We found Magnetic North, and we said, okay, Magnetic North's that way somewhere. Everybody get their baseball, get warmed up. Now, Trey, I want you to throw your baseball as hard as you can. Everybody throw your baseball as hard as you can. We're all going to try to hit the North Pole. Okay? One, two, three. Boom! Throw it. How many people hit the North Pole? We, we, we throw our balls different distances. I mean, I would guess, just looking, Ben or Blaine or Dale would probably, and, and probably Ken, would probably throw their baseballs farther than anybody else. Uh, some of us would just not throw them very far. But the point is, even though we'd have all kinds of different levels of how far we could throw the baseballs, even the best throw would be thousands of miles short of the target, right? So four weeks ago, I pulled out this reference to righteous Lot and said, how in the world, based on what we know from Genesis, could anybody call him righteous? He's not righteous in his behavior. He's not righteous in his experience. He's righteous in the way God sees him. Because, and you might say, well, that's New Testament written, read back in the Old Testament. No, it's not. Genesis 15, 6 says, Abraham believed the promises God gave about the Savior and reckoned that as righteousness to Abraham. That's the essence of Christianity. The essence of Christianity is not we get together on Sundays and sing songs and baptize people. The essence of Christianity is God loved the world so much He gave his son to pay the sin debt of the world in your place as your substitute. And then he came back alive again. And that's really important 
Not just to show that God can do stuff like that, but to validate the saving power of Jesus' death. Because guess what? A dead Savior can't get you from Oklahoma to heaven. But the risen Savior, and nobody else has done that. Uh, Muhammad didn't do that, can't do it. The Buddha can't do it. Vishnu, Krishna, none of them can do it. It's only the God-man Savior, Jesus, that died for all of Julie's sins, even the ones you haven't done yet. Okay, As far as your legal standing, he's paid for your sins rose again to validate the saving virtue of his death. And he says, you can receive it by faith. As many as receive him, to get them he gave the right to become children of God to those who believe on his name. My favorite verse on this that people don't quote often enough, Romans 4, 5, but to the one who does not work. This is Romans 4, 5. It's in your Bible. This is what it says in the original language. But to the one who does not work, so stop thinking you can throw your baseball over the North Pole. You're never going to get it there. You can't throw it that far. But to the one who does not work, but who believes in Christ, who justifies the ungodly, those who can't hit the North Pole, that person's faith in Christ is reckoned as righteousness. You can't make this up, but the plan is our sins were imputed to Christ and judged on the cross, and when we trust him for that, his righteousness is imputed to us, and that's the way God sees us as our legal standing. So, you know, this passage which seems... You know, unusual and complicated isn't that complicated when you get the box top out and look just at the box top. What he's saying is there's false teachers out there. They're going to confuse people. They're going to get rich and famous. Uh, Larry King and CNN are going to think these are wonderful teachers of truth and philosophy and, and virtue, and they're going to get rich and famous. But, you know, they're going to get theirs, and everybody's going to get what they deserve, except for those who trust in the Savior, and then we don't get what we deserve. I love that. Now let's get to the punchline here. Then, if God didn't spare those incredibly super powerful, super malicious angels back in Genesis 6, if he didn't spare the whole ancient world, seemingly the whole world against eight people, and yet the whole world lost, if he didn't spare the seemingly prosperous, and yet incredibly uh, sexual, abusive culture of Sodom and Gomorrah, but he saved Noah and Lot out of all that. Then, verse 9 and the first part of verse 10, then, just relax, just calm down, get a glass of milk, eat a sandwich, you know. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation, and that word uh, parasmos there means from troubles or trials. And to keep the unrighteous under punishment. They're going to get what they deserve, even if they live a uh, hundred years on earth in, prosper, in prosperity for the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge the flesh in corrupt desires and despise authority. You know, he's listing how terrible and malicious these people are, and he says the, their main problem is they despise authority. Now, we live in a culture that basically despises authority, that blames authority figures for all the problems. Obviously, teachers are the problem in education. The reason that our educational levels aren't any good is because we got, it's because of teachers, you know? And the reason we have crime, you know why? Police. That's the reason we have crime, because of the police, right? And certainly the reason we've got a lot of immorality in this culture is because of the preachers, right? We blame the authority figures, uh, you know, for the problems. Uh, we despise authority. I mean, uh, I remember how naive I was when we, we got married at a very young age, age 20, moved to Houston, Texas. And this is so long ago. Uh, you know, when you move to Texas from a little town, Nederland, Texas, 
Uh, you move to Houston, and everybody's driving like 85 miles an hour on the freeway and the loop around Houston. And it just kind of freaks you out. And eventually you figure out, you know, it's every man for himself. You've got to drive 85 just to keep from getting run over, right? But I remember being troubled by that just because I was so so since naive. I thought everybody should actually drive the speed limit, you know? And uh, then uh, we had the oil embargo and uh, by the OPEC nations. And Jimmy Carter, the president, said, I know how to solve that. We're going to reduce the national speed limit to 55 miles an hour. Did that help? Not really. But anyway, I remember, that was very controversial. They, they, they decided to do that, and they made a big deal about it, especially in the Houston uh, local media, that starting whatever day it started, I forgot what day, what day it was, let's say September 1st. Let's say April 1st, you know, April Fool's Day would be better. Whenever it started, the night before, all the local news was saying that. Tomorrow, at midnight tonight, the, uh, you know, the loop is no longer 85 miles an hour. Now it's 55 miles an hour. And I thought, this is going to be so great. Tomorrow, when I get up and go to school, everybody's going to be driving 55 miles an hour. It's going to be, and we're going to be drive friendly and smiling at everybody and we're not trying to kill each other. And so I got up there on that loop, you know, everybody's still going 85 miles an hour. I mean, it didn't change anything. The idea that we pass one more law is going to solve all the problems. People despise authority, right? And yet deep down inside of us, we know that people that do bad things ought to be punished. God puts that in there, in you, so you're going to look for a savior. But we kind of explain that away and blame it on the police or whatever like that, right? So that's, that's the, I think that's the lesson from this passage. The specifics are important. But I think, uh, the idea that when you bump into a passage like this, back away and say, overall, what's it saying? What it's saying is, don't freak out. In times of crisis, especially when evil seems to be prevailing, does it look like evil's prevailing in our culture today, Wendy? It sure does. And when it looks like evil doers, I mean, the more bizarre stuff they do, uh, in our culture gets celebrated in our culture, right? Uh, when evildoers seem to prosper and are rich and famous, you know, rest in, focus in who God is and uh, resist the temptation to only see uh, the problems in people. Now watch this. Let me say a couple things about God's justice and then we'll close because people are kind of offended by the judgment of God nowadays, which is very unfortunate. Um, I won't go into a lot of detail here, but if you want more information, we've got an expert. Experts, anybody from out of town who knows the vocabulary. Paul Copens from out of town. Is God a moral monster? What do you think he concludes on that? No. And he talks about, especially on the Sodom and Gomorrah thing, just archaeologically how horrible that culture was. They were brutalizing little kids sexually before putting them on altars and killing them, burning them uh, for their own fun. Uh, when you, and that's the Canaanite culture. That was certainly the uh, Son of Gomorrah culture. But watch this. Uh, here's a principle I want you to know. Let me give you uh, a couple of things about the justice of God you need to know. <clears throat> Number one, looking at acts of justice without looking at the context, all the related events, can lead to a rejection of justice. I mean, you can see a YouTube video now where a police officer grabs the guy, throws him against the wall, hits his hand against the, a wall, and then jumps on top of him. And if that's all you see, you say, that's police brutality. No doubt about it. But what you didn't see is that guy just shot two little kids in the head, in the head, ran out of bullets, grabbed a knife, tried to knife the police officer. He grabs the knife, throws him against the wall, puts him down, and holds him down. And then you go, now I understand what the excitement was about, right? We tend to isolate acts of justice out of context 
and we become very morally affronted by things that actually are, unfortunately, in a fallen world, sometimes the lesser of evils is all you get. Okay, Dropping the atomic bombs on Japan at the end of uh, World War II, isolated as individual incidents, are horrific. They're terrible, and they are horrible. But far worse would have been a wholesale invasion of the main of the islands of Japan, which would have ensured millions of civilian casualties, millions of Japanese military casualties, and at least a million U.S. casualties. In, in a fallen world, sometimes all you get is lesser of evils. If you isolate justice from context, it's not going to look very just. You need to be wise enough not to do that. Uh, second point, God's justice isn't pretty. How could it be? Justice isn't pretty. But God's justice is always preceded by God's grace. Now, in regard, people say, well, how can I, I, my God would never judge Sodom and Gomorrah. Well, your God is a figment of your imagination, and you need to back off and think about who he really is. Uh, God's got all these incredible, perfect attributes. God is true, that is, not that he's truth, truthful, but he really exists, and as Christus said, well, he's the source of all reality. He's real, he's the source of reality. He's triune, one God, three persons. He's outside of time, space, transcendent. He's omniscient. He knows everything. He's omnipotent, no limit to his power. He's omnipresent, everywhere present in the universe, time, space, not being spread out, but 100% present everywhere. Blows your mind. He's just, righteous, sovereign, and goes on. Okay, All those attributes work all at the same time. Now, I found this slide, and it's really nice. Now, watch. This is going to scare you away, but hang in there with me. God's incomprehensible. I can't spell that, so I had to find a, a graphic that would do that for me. We all believe in our hearts and confess with our mouths there's a single and simple. Simple? How could that be simple? I'll tell you how. Be, Russell, hold on. I'm going to show you how it's simple, okay? We believe in our hearts and confess with our mouths there's a single and simple spiritual being whom we call God, eternal, incomprehensible, invisible, unchangeable, infinite, almighty, completely wise, just and good, and the overflowing source of all good. Now, you see the word simple there? Theologians use the word simple, meaning that God is not 7.69% love, 7.69% justice. Like, he's a piece of love and a piece of justice and a piece of omnipotence and a piece of uh, all these components. He's 100% love. He's 100% just. He's 100% omnipotent. There's no one attribute... Uh, he's not a composition of a bunch of attributes, a little bit of this, a little bit of that. And no one of his attributes, not his love or his justice, dominates all the other ones. They always work in perfect harmony. That's what the simplicity of God means. And a lot of us don't think like that, but that's how you can see the same loving God that sends the Savior judging people who refuse the overtures of his grace. And he that's just the way it works. And um, justice isn't pretty, but God's justice is always preceded by his grace. So I'm going to close this way. You know, sometimes it seems like God's justice turns slowly. I can think of egregious cases in this town of people I think should be pulled out of their closet. Uh, light should be shown on them because they're fakes or they're horrible people. Uh, I know one guy in this room who told me, he beware, he's very wary of people who claim to be business, Christian lawyers, Christian plumbers, or Christian anything, because most of those people end up to be pretty slimy when you see them in a boardroom or uh, see them, uh, you know, uh, uh, without their disguise on, right? And even as a preacher, 
I found out people will flat lie to me about their faith. I mean, they just flat will lie to me. You know, it's hard to believe. But I actually believe that now. But uh, so sometimes it seems like, well, God, why don't you do something? You know, he is doing something. He is at work. This passage says, hey, if God didn't spare those super malicious, super powerful angels in Genesis 6, didn't spare the whole world in Genesis 9, didn't spare Sodom and Gomorrah, and he could list another thousand examples, but he did take care of his folks in the midst of that lot and Noah. Then God knows how to keep the unrighteous under punishment, especially those who indulge in all kinds of corrupt desires. They're going to get what they deserve. There's going to be no lawyer getting them off of the justice bar of God and those who despise God's authority. Okay, uh, Let me finish this way. If you've never put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, you can get what you deserve from God if you want to, but you don't want that. Okay, uh, This is why we're told that... Uh, uh, Christ died for the ungodly, that Christ who knew no sin, who committed no sin, was made to be a sin offering for us. You can look at God with your own merit, and there ain't none compared to him, or you can look to God and appear before God based on the merits of Jesus Christ. Throw yourself on the mercy of the Savior. Say, Lord Jesus, I have sinned. I break my own standards, much less yours at my worst. I believe you died to pay for my sin. Rose again, I accept you, I trust you as my Savior. It's, 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 uh, it's active, receptive trust. It's not just mental assent that somebody named Jesus died on a, on a piece of wood. It's active, receptive trust. You know, it's an act of the will, not just the, the uh, intellect. Lord Jesus, I want you to be my Savior. I believe you died for me and rose again. That's all the terrorists on the cross did, by the way. Did he walk an aisle? The terrorists on the cross? Jesus, remember when you come to your kingdom? Did he walk an aisle, sign a card, get baptized? Do you have to be baptized to be saved? No. Do you have to wear a wedding ring to be married? Am I married? Very happily, you know? 44 years in a row. That's the hard part. Okay, Blaine. That's, it's, it's, you're doing it year after year, you know? It takes you a while to make, help him become a world-class wife. I mean, you know? Uh, I didn't give up and it worked, you know? Uh, baptism is a really good thing for Christians to do. It's a way to testify their faith. But that water didn't wash away their sins. Okay, Trevor, that water didn't wash away your sins, man. It, that's not holy water. There's nothing special about that water. Okay. Now, I've been to the Jordan River. You can come with me to the Jordan River in May of next year, and we'll see where the Israeli government says Jesus baptized, which isn't where it happened. And then we'll also show you what actually happened in the various, various area. And there's nothing special about that water. It's not the water that saves uh, although God does give you the bath of salvation when you dare to trust in Jesus alone. And this is not Jesus does a little bit and you do the rest to make yourself good enough. This is Jesus does it all. Are you willing to dare trust him for your salvation? That You can't do that without a lot of divine help setting you up to do that. But that's our invitation. We're not going to ask you to sign a card or um, or walk an aisle. But that's our invitation to you. Uh, for those of us who are believers... You know, it's it's hard not to be depressed as you look around at our culture and see it going right down the garbage can. And you get to the point where you think it can't get any worse, and you wait a week, and they're coming up with more bizarre, unbelievable, uh, horrific kind of stuff that you'd even think about that the culture would embrace. Increasingly, we're embracing this unsustainable moral and financial reality that's going to collapse on itself sooner rather than later. But, and this is for me, so I'm going to repeat it and then close. In times of crisis, especially when it looks like the evil 
is prospering and is going to go on indefinitely. And evildoers seem to get off scot-free. And it's the teachers that get maligned. And it's the police officers get maligned. And even the preachers get maligned. Believers should rest in who God is. He's a God of love and justice, not one or the other. And resist the temptation to see only the people and problems around us. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, you tell us in the first epistle of Peter that those who suffer in the will of God should entrust themselves to a faithful creator in doing what's right. And here he's saying the same thing to us again in Second Peter. Uh, Father, forgive us for panicking or maybe wimping out in, in facing the challenges of doing the right thing as a teacher or as a peace officer or as a mother or a father or a grandparent or as a high school student or a middle school student or as a pastor. Uh, just encourage us as believers to do the right thing and to be uh, encouraged by the reality of your eternal love and justice. And I pray for anyone here this morning who's not from the depth of their heart as you draw them seen and believed in Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray you might sovereignly open their eyes to see and receive the gift of eternal life. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.